Have you noticed how true crime as a genre has just kind of taken off in the last few years? So you go to the bookstore, there's, there's anybody ever go to a bookstore anymore? Amazon, you go to Amazon and there's, there's true crime all over the place. There's po- true crime podcasts, which I've never listened to. I have no idea what it would be, but a true crime, pro- there's documentaries and TV shows and movies about true crime. And I think behind all this is that question, uh, it's, and it's a curiosity question. What in the world would make somebody do something like that? And we want to know. We want to dig to the bottom of it. We're enamored with and curious behind crimes like murder, which seem to be unthinkable to us. But when you think about it, is murder really unthinkable? I mean, this is a crime that's been with us since Genesis chapter 4. When Cain picked up the rock and followed his brother into the field, or invited his brother into the field, and struck him down in cold blood. And Abel's blood, though it was the first, was not the only blood, and it hasn't been the last blood, to cry out to God from the ground for justice. Murder has been at the heart of the human tragedy since almost the beginning. And perhaps that's why this is the first sin that Jesus addresses when he begins addressing these things in the Sermon on the Mount. So the question of this morning is, is it enough to just not murder? I think the first thing that Jesus is going to point out is he, as he begins a series of teachings in which he reframes the law. Several times he's going to say, you've heard it said this, something from the law of Moses but I say this. And it's almost like he's, he, he's coming and teaching a new law, but that's not the case. He's reframing the law so that we can understand really what the heart behind the law is. So if you're still in Matthew 5, we're going to be reading starting there at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, it's easy for us when we hear that first commandment. You've heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder, and everyone who murders will be liable to the judgment. It's easy for us to kind of stand outside and say, I've never murdered, so I don't fall in the murderer category. So if, if I don't fall in that category, what category do I fall in? Well, I fall in the category of judge. If, if you murder, you're liable to judgment. Since I'm not a murderer, I must be a judge. Well, I can stand on the outside, happily and smugly, looking at the murderers and saying, I'm not one of them. And that's what we do, right? When someone commits a crime that we can never imagine, we start calling them things like animals, psychos, we, we begin to dehumanize them, making them in our minds something less than we are. But what Jesus does here in this statement is he takes, he takes these two statements and, and he builds a parallel showing us that all of us are indicted. So on one side you have the accused. Whoever murders will be liable on this side to the judges, to the, to the judgment. And then Jesus sets this up right underneath it. But I say to you, everyone who's angry, everyone who's furious, everyone who rages at their brother or their sister will be what? Liable to judgment. So all all of a sudden, we're not on this side anymore, are we? Ever been angry with somebody? Ever been furious with somebody? 
We held a grudge against somebody. Okay, all of a sudden Jesus has brought us over here to where we are the accused. Not only does he do that, but in doing so, he begins to answer the deeper question for us. Who would do and why would anyone do such a thing? Jesus asked, why in the world would anybody do, anyone be angry with their brother? That should be a question that we ask. You see, murder is a, is a singular kind of outward action, and it's perpetrated by relatively few human beings. The majority of human beings have probably not been physically murdered somebody. So he says, whoever murders, the one who murders. But then when he speaks about anger, what, what uh, pronoun does he use there? Everyone. Not just whoever, not just the one who, not just those few people who murder, but everyone who is angry with their brother is liable to the judgment. See, anger, fury is a heart posture against another person, and it is indulged in not just by the few, but by the vast majority of human beings, including you and me. We all stand accused. But Jesus doesn't stop at anger. He moves beyond anger to something that's even more insidious. So let's consider Matthew 5, verse 22 again. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate it into maybe a, a more modern English because some of the things that Jesus said fall kind of softly on our ears. So, so how might Jesus say it today? And I'm going to leave out the, the four-letter words and the expletives, by the way, because today... That's probably the words we would use. I'm not even going to put a bleep bleep up there, okay? So here's a modern rendering of how this might be, okay? Everyone angry or furious with their brother is liable to judgment. The second one, whoever calls his brother an idiot is liable to the jury. See, the council was the Sanhedrin. You, you would come before for judgment to the Sanhedrin, to the, to the council of the elders. And, and in modern day, that would be the jury. Like, you're, you're liable to go to court in front of a jury and be condemned by a jury of your peers if you call your brother a stupid idiot. The, the word that Jesus used there was raka. You probably see that in some of your translations. If you call your brother raka, which was just a term of contempt, if you call your brother that, you'll be liable to the jury. And then finally, whoever says fool or whoever says you're a worthless lowlife will be liable to hellfire. The appropriate words for what Jesus is referring to here, Dallas Willard suggested this to me, is the word contempt. Jesus is talking about contempt. That you treat people and you see people with contempt. And the, the dictionary definition of contempt is the feeling that a person is beneath consideration. That they're worthless. That they're deserving of scorn. Let me give you an example, a, a real-time, real-life example of contempt. In your mind, think of your least favorite politician. I don't want to think about them, right? I know exactly who I'm thinking about. Okay, so that feeling in your gut, maybe. Maybe it's a flaring of the nostrils. Maybe your temperature just went up. Maybe you have hackles on the back of your neck. Maybe you have a feeling of disgust. I don't know what it is, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's contempt, but that might just be contempt that you're feeling. And contempt increasingly is an acceptable language and attitude in our culture. I can remember even five or ten years ago 
when I could drive through town without seeing the F word on somebody's car. But I can barely do that now. I can barely drive downtown and not see emblazoned on the, on the back of somebody's, uh, like the window glass on the back of their car, the F word or, or, or some kind of expletive or, or, a, or a, uh, a middle finger. You seen that one as you drive through town? And what you see there is just kind of this blanket, bold, tangible expression of contempt. In other words, I'm giving the entire world the middle finger. That's contempt. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. Contempt is a seething antipathy, a despising, a not caring attitude towards others, that dehumanizes its object and doesn't consider them as worthy of of just basic human decency, which is precisely why, in Jesus' eyes, contempt is unworthy of kingdom citizens, because in dishonoring and scorning human beings, whoever they might be, wherever they might be from, and whatever they may have done, We are scorning the God in whose image they are made. You see, kingdom citizens don't call it good enough to just avoid murder. If we're followers of Jesus, we don't get to the end of the day and say, well, I didn't kill anybody today, I'm doing great. They actively, actively guard against anger. Guard against it. Throw wet towels and blankets on it to not let it grow up. They guard against the offspring of anger, which is contempt, because they know that no one can get to murder unless they first feed anger and cultivate contempt towards their fellow image bearers. Yes, the question, who would do such a thing? Well, the person who would do such a thing is someone who is fed anger and cultivated contempt. God hates murder. He lays this down in Genesis chapter 9 after um, the earth has been filled with all sorts and manners of evil and the thoughts and intentions of every human heart is only towards sin and evil. God sends a flood and wipes out all but eight. And when they get off the ark, he says to them, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God hates murder because he cares about humans who are made in his image. And Jesus is saying not only that, but but God cares about, or, or God hates the road to murder, the road that goes through anger and contempt, because God loves those who are made in his image. And those who are kingdom citizens, those who are followers of Jesus, hold God in the highest regard, and as a result, they hold every single one of his image bearers in high regard. So they'll flee from anger because they fear its insidious ability to take root in our hearts and grow into contempt, which in itself is really a kind of murder. Now, if you remember the the Sermon on the Mount is what we're in right now, Matthew 5 through 7. This teaching of Jesus, the, uh, probably the most poignant teaching ever made in the history of mankind. In fact, if you spent the rest of your life only studying Matthew 5 through 7, you will not have wasted your life. 
if you put it into practice. (laughs) This is the Sermon on the Mount. And what it is is really a handbook for life in God's kingdom. This is what it looks like to live in God's kingdom, to be his people, to be his followers. The, The first verses of chapter five were called the Beatitudes, which was Jesus' description of kingdom citizens. And now Jesus is showing how how kingdom citizens will will live as salt and light in the world. And he says, as as Joe brought to you last week, he says that if you're a kingdom citizen, your righteousness must, must far outweigh, far outshine, far exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who are the most goody two-shoes people that have it together that you can even imagine. So you can imagine that they would hear Jesus say that, hold on, our our righteousness has to exceed that of the the best people we know. Well, that must mean that Jesus is going to come and he's going to double down on the law. He's going to bring us more rules. He's going to tell us more stuff to do, which, which in one sense seems oppressive, but in one sense, I think we all hear that and we go like, you know what, that'd be kind of nice if Jesus would just tell us what to do. Like in every situation, Jesus, can you just show up and tell me what to do? (laughs) Tell me exactly what to do here. Give me the answer. But when Jesus says that a greater righteousness is necessary, he's not going to just tell us what to do. We read these verses sometimes and say, okay, as long as I don't call anyone an idiot or a fool, I'm good. I'm just fine. And we're tempted to translate Jesus' words here as rules rather than illustrations. He's giving an illustration of what a kingdom life actually looks like, boots on the ground, in real life. But when we do that, when we just take them and say, okay, this is the rule. I'm not going to ever say fool or idiot, but man, I can think and say a lot of other things. See, when we do that, we get ourselves into just as much trouble as the scribes and Pharisees Because we set ourselves to obey an outward set of rules and our hearts remain untouched and unchanged. Because anybody can walk around and make sure they don't say raka or idiot or fool to someone. But how much more difficult is it to actually be the kind of person that Jesus is talking about? Jesus is not laying down a bunch of rules to follow because a kingdom heart doesn't flow from right living. Rather, right living flows from a kingdom heart, which is the kind that Jesus lays out in the Beatitudes. And Jesus is showing here how radically countercultural it is to live in his kingdom in real life with boots on the ground in everyday kind of ways. So, so a citizen of the kingdom, of course, they do not murder. Right? There's more to loving Jesus's people in Jesus's way than not murdering them. So it's not enough for you to go home after church today and say, you know what, honey, we did great at loving people today. I didn't kill anybody. Jesus is interested in making us the kind of people who would never even consider murdering someone because we're so interested in loving others that we militate against anger. Because we know that that if we we allow it a beachhead, if if we allow If we allow anger to land on the beachhead of our heart, that it will gain more and more ground until it transforms into contempt. And when anger and contempt are full grown on a heart level, they're just as wicked as murder. And that's not the way of God's kingdom people. And so to make his point here, Jesus gives us two illustrations. I'm going to remind you again, these aren't rules. These are illustrations. And they show us, first of all, 
the most important thing. So what does it mean to actually pursue an existence that's centered on right relationships? And that's the most important thing. To Jesus, we're going to see here that right relationship with other image-bearing human beings is the most important thing. What does it mean to be someone who lives out this beatitude of blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called sons and daughters of God? Well, the first thing is that we as kingdom citizens, we as followers of Jesus must be willing to set aside highly important things in our lives for the most important thing. We must be willing to set aside the things that seem the most important, that are highly important for the most important thing. So to help us understand, Jesus gives a for instance. So he's saying, this could look something like this, verse 23, chapter 5. So if you're offering your gift, you could be saying, for instance, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So let's step back and consider the context of this illustration, which is temple worship in Jerusalem. Perhaps the most important, the most sacred privilege in the life of an ancient Israelite. So an observant Jew would set aside everything else in life. They would put life on pause in order to bring a gift to God's altar. They bring the first fruits of of their crop, of their grain or their fruit. They would bring an unblemished lamb, the perfect animal, before uh, the the altar for a burnt offering. And they they would reverently come and they they would offer and present all of these things in the presence of a priest before the sacred altar of God Almighty. So imagine having spent days and even weeks cleansing yourself preparing yourself to come to church. Anybody spend days and weeks preparing yourself to come to church on Sunday morning? That's what these people would do. Spend days and weeks just getting themselves prepared and and cleansed and holy for this moment. Imagine having spent weeks, even months, raising the perfect spotless lamb or raising a crop of, of bountiful harvest in order to bring the first fruits. Imagine making a days-long pilgrimage to the holy city with your family at time of festival, leaving behind your house, your fields, your crops, your, your flocks, in order to come to the temple for this moment. Nothing is more important than this moment of offering. And Jesus is saying, having walked through all that days and weeks and months, To get to this point, you're there with your lamb in your arms, you're bringing it to the priest, and God brings something to mind about someone you've offended. What do you do? Drop the lamb. Push pause. Go and make it right. There's something more important than bringing that offering to the altar, and it's people. It's relationships, something so important that you should interrupt the most sacred and holy ritual in your life to attend to it. God cares about our relationships. God cares that we be living in reconciled, peace-filled, right relationships with those around us. And Jesus is saying that kingdom citizens 
who are peacemakers will faithfully walk away from one of the most important moments of their lives, will say, hold on, God, i got to take care of something. They'll do that in order to pursue reconciliation above anything else, and God will be pleased with that. The, the modern equivalent might be something of this sort. Imagine Jesus saying this. Let's say it's, it's your wedding day. You're walking down the aisle to the man of your dreams, or you're standing at the altar in awe of the, wooden, the woman of your dreams, and suddenly you remember the rude and demeaning comment that you made to your future mother-in-law at the rehearsal dinner the night before. What do you do? You stop the ceremony. Organ player, halt. Hand your bouquet off to somebody. Lift up your veil. Put things on pause and go and make things right. There are more important things than the most important things in our life. And the most important thing is people and relationships. And Jesus is saying that. And in light of these most important things, to value and, and elevate people and relationships above them. These are God's image bearers. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. And part of that means that, that's, that sometimes we pursue reconciliation and it doesn't happen because the other party isn't willing to be reconciled. But, but Paul says to us, as far as it depends on you, pursue living peaceably with all. Now, let me point out another very important element in this example. So the person is there at the altar. They're bringing their, their, their gift, and, and then Jesus points something out. Whose sin has caused the rift in the relationship? It's the person bringing the offering, right? So it's not, the, it's not that you've been offended and you need to go make it right. It's that you, that your brother has something against you, Jesus says. And what this means is that the way in which we undermine the power of anger and contempt in our hearts, the the way that we fight against it is to recognize that our own sin is greater than that of others. We have to be blessed are the meek, and the meek are the people that know that they're the worst sinner in the room. Jesus says, look at your own sin first. So let me give you an example. Have you ever had a disagreement with your spouse? And if not, we'd like you to sound up, uh, sign up for our counseling ministry. Um, have you ever had a disagreement with your spouse? And after the disagreement, maybe you go your separate ways. You go into one room, she goes into the other. You drag your feet and you mope and you fume and, and, and you wait for them to come humbly and repentantly confessing their sins to you. Does anybody else do that? I think I'm hitting a nerve. (laughs) When are they going to come and tell me how wrong they were? And you spend the entire time building up this case and justifying in your mind why you are in the right and they are in the wrong. Now, you can take this and, and, and apply it to any relationship, but soon when we do that, we start justifying ourselves. We start telling ourselves this story, and all of a sudden we're not sinners anymore in the story. We're impeccable and pure and holy and righteous, and, and they are sinning. Even if they didn't, we build something. We give them a sin. We put it on them. And we begin to identify them with that sin. 
And you can see how anger can grow into contempt in a situation like that. When we identify someone with their sin, well, they're not an image bearer anymore. They're a sin bearer. There's someone who's sinned against me, and that's who they are. But to take the first step towards reconciliation and right relationship requires recognition of and grief over our own sin. Blessed are those who mourn. What do we mourn first? We mourn our own sin. And in humility and meekness and repentance, we come. We make the first move. We humble ourselves. But, but the anger that leads to contempt holds on to another sin, even to the point of identifying them with their sin while ignoring our own sin. But humility, like I said, allows me, allows you to see yourself as the biggest sinner in the room and therefore the one who's eager to make things right, which actually leads in to Jesus' next illustration. Which brings out this point, that an unwillingness to reconcile may cost you dearly. Verse 25, Jesus says, here's another example. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, contextually, this illustration is likely, uh, what Jesus is likely referring to here is someone who is being taken to debtor's court. They owe money, perhaps a great deal of money to someone, their accuser, and they're being taken to debtor's court to be put in debtor's prison until their debt is paid off. They owe their accuser a certain amount of money, and Jesus seems to be picturing someone who is on the wrong end of that. They're the debtor. And they're being dragged to court to to be put in front of this debtor's prison. And for some reason, they're not trying to make it right. And you can imagine what that reason would be. I'm going to call it that they're holding on to their perceived rights with a righteous anger. And are unwilling to make any concessions for the sake of peace, even though doing that may cost them dearly in the end. And Jesus urges the debtor to pursue a settlement, to pursue a deal, to pursue some sort of reconciliation, rather than fiercely holding on to their rights and facing the judgment. The priority of kingdom citizens should always be peace and reconciliation. Not just with those who are close to us, who we we would call brother and sister, but in this illustration, even with our enemies and our adversaries, even when the situation seems completely hopeless, they're never going to respond. They're never going to forgive me. They're never going to come around. I'm not going to do it. But when we do that, we, we we undercut God's ability to graciously work things out. And we prioritize our rights over our relationships. We often head to judgment. We just watched the movie uh, Seabiscuit again this last week. Uh, the movie about the famous racehorse. And um, in that movie, Tobey Maguire plays the jockey and his name's Red. So it's kind of a movie about the horse and this jockey and the, their struggles in life and whatever. Well, after the, the first race, there's this really poignant scene and they have this plan, the trainer, Chris Cooper, gives them this plan, and they go in, 
And in, in the race, he gets fouled by another jockey. Jockey tries to run him into the pole, and he just loses it, just angry loses it, and just go. I won't show it to you this morning because it's full of bad language. But he, he goes after this other jockey and tries to force him into the pool, the, and he's, he's into the pole, and he's just he's, he's, um, trash-talking him and all this stuff, and he's just angry. And, the, and he loses the race. They both end up losing. And afterwards, he's having this heated discussion with his trainer, Chris Cooper, and then the, uh, the owner of the horse, played by Jeff Bridges. And he's just angry. And, and they say, what were you doing? He says, he fouled me. And they're like, so what? He fouled you. He's like, he fouled me. Do you want me to just let him get away with it? And the trainer goes, well, yeah. I want you to win the race. We had a plan. Why didn't you do it? He fouled me. What was I supposed to do? I mean, he says this over and over. He says, he fouled me. What am I supposed to do if he fouls me? And he finally, he looks at the owner of the horse, Jeff Bridges, and he just look, the owner just looks at him and says, son, what are you so mad at? It's kind of this changing point in the movie where he realizes, man, there's, this, there's some brokenness and some hurt way down deep that's driving his anger and causing his anger. And... and I know people say a lot that anger is really a secondary emotion. There's usually something underneath it that's driving it, that drives our anger, that drives our contempt. Oftentimes, it's our own will. (laughs) Oftentimes, it's ourselves. We have been crossed. Our will has been crossed. And we're angry that someone wouldn't take us into account as they should. And when we prioritize our own rights, our own righteous anger in ourselves over the most important thing in life, which is loving others and relationships with others, then we're not on the right track. God would call us to more than that. And the final point I'll make here, it just kind of flows out of this, is that we are all to make peace with God. The, the matter really comes full circle here to the most important relationship of all, which is our relationship with God. And in one sense, we're all debtors heading to debtor's prison. God, the one to whom we owe an infinite debt is walking alongside us. And as sinners, we can stand in our righteousness and our, our selfishness and our hardened hearts and our anger and face certain eternal judgment because none of us as sinners is exempt from divine judgment for what we deserve because of the debt that we owe. But the one we walk with, let me tell you about him. He is one who has made us, and his heart is for us. He is one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. His heart is soft and gracious and ready to forgive. And Jesus, I think, would call us here, remember your most important relationship Don't go to judgment, but make things right with God because the offer is there and the offer is there in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who came and paid our debt for us by dying on a cross so that we could have forgiveness of sins. But what do we have to do to to access that forgiveness? We have to repent. To recognize our sins, we have to turn back to God and we have to believe in faith that he died for us. For you this morning, that may be the first time you've heard that message. It may be the hundredth time you've heard that message. But this morning is the day of salvation. I would, I would encourage you, make things right with God before you are thrown in prison and have to pay the last penny even into eternity.
And if God is moving in you that way this morning, I would encourage you to come and talk to me or one of the other elders or, or someone about what he is doing in your heart today. And I would ask you all to pray with me. Father, we are gracious, are grateful. You're gracious. We're grateful for your grace, for your loving kindness, for your forgiveness. We thank you that you sent your son to die that we might have peace with you, that we might have restored and reconciled relationships. God, that is what you are about, and that is what your kingdom is about. So, Father, forgive us when we put other things on our altar as more important than reconciliation and relationship. Uh, Forgive us. Forgive us when we do that, Lord, and forgive us when we... Forgive us when we turn from you and when we place ourselves and our own rights above the image that you've put in our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters. Lord, help us to defend, help us to fight against anger and the roots of bitterness and contempt that grow into our hearts. Catch us, Lord, when we do so. Catch us when when you find us seething with anger or contempt at people that you love and have made. And and Lord, may we be people who are driven to prayer and driven towards each other. God, we need you desperately. We need you to do a gracious work in our hearts of forgiveness and to transform us into the image of your son. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for coming here and speaking to us and leading us through your spirit. We pray all these things in your name.